Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On Tuesday the 29th of September, we held a webinar on the end-of-life choice referendum. This was part of a series of online panel discussions delving into some of the big issues facing us in the upcoming election. Well, kia ora. Welcome uh, everyone to this webinar on the important topic of assisted dying. And this webinar is being hosted by Teherengo Waka, uh, Victoria University of Wellington. I'm Jonathan Boston. I'm one of the professors in the Wellington School of Business and Government. And it's my pleasure to host this particular webinar. We have three superb panelists, two who are in favor of the End of Life Choice Act, and one of whom is against. And I'll introduce the speakers briefly. But just to lay out the ground rules, each speaker will have up to seven minutes to make their points. We were using the Q&A function on the system. So if anyone has a, a question for the panel, can you please ask your question? And others will have the opportunity to vote in favor of the various questions. And we'll take uh, the questions in order of that sort of vote. After each of the speakers has contributed, I'll give the, uh, each speaker an opportunity just to comment on what the other person has said before we go to questions and answers. And we'll wrap up at one o'clock. So can I now welcome the three speakers? Uh, the first is Dr. Jessica Young. Jessica is the executive director of the Yes for Compassion campaign and is also an adjunct research fellow in the School of Health here at Victoria University of Wellington. Jessica completed her PhD through Dunedin School of Medicine at Otago University, and her PhD was the first study uh, to explore the views of terminally ill New Zealanders and explored those who might wish to choose assisted dying if they'd had the opportunity available to them. And she sought to bring uh, this research that she undertook into the uh, current campaign for assisted dying. So we look forward to what Jessica will have to contribute shortly. Second, the second speaker is Dr. Carol Shand. Carol is a retired GP uh, who's been based here in Wellington uh, and she's a fellow of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. She specializes in, or has specialized in, in women's health and sexual health for more than 40 years. And she's one of 17 doctors who wrote to MPs last year, urging them to vote for a change in the law to facilitate the assisted dying. And then thirdly, we've got uh, Dr. Peter Thurkel. Peter is uh, Emeritus Professor in the School of Marketing and International Business here at Victoria University of Wellington. And he's a member of the anti-euthanasia group called Vote No to the End of Life Act Society, which has a working title of Risky Law. NZ. And he's been involved in the issue of euthanasia over the last five years or so. So uh, welcome to all three speakers. Let me just say a very quick word about the End of Life Choice Act, which is the subject of this webinar. So the Act has two main purposes. First, it gives people with a terminal illness and who meet certain additional criteria, which we'll be discussing during the webinar, the option of lawfully requesting medical assistance to end their lives. Such assistance isn't legal at present. Second, it establishes a lawful process to assist eligible people to exercise this option if they so wish. 
and no doubt we'll be discussing the nature of that lawful process over the next 55 minutes or so. The Act also mandates the forthcoming referendum on the 17th of October. If at least 50% vote yes in the referendum, then assisted dying will become legal some 12 months or so later, so towards the end of 2021. Further information is available online with respect to this particular issue at referendums.gov.nz. So those of you who wish to find out further information after this webinar, I suggest you have a look at that particular website. So may I now welcome Dr. Jessica Young and look forward, Jessica, to what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Kia ora, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. I'd like to use my time to describe the Act, what the research says, and the reasons dying people uh, want to have choice of assisted dying at the end of their lives. I want to be clear that I support this Act because it's a safe law, um, and it's clear that it only applies to a restricted group of people. It's not enough to be terminally ill with fewer than six months left to live. You also must be experiencing unbearable suffering that cannot be relieved by treatment that is tolerable to you, and you must be in an advanced state of irreversible physical decline. You must be assessed as competent to make this decision, specifically about assisted dying, by two, possibly even three doctors. And that's just the eligibility criteria. So there are over 45 requirements in the Act that also must be met. I'll just run through a few of these. The doctor must do their best to ensure that a person's choice to access assisted dying is made of their own free will by discussing with that person over a number of sessions to check that they are making a free, enduring and informed decision. They also need to make sure that the person understands their other options for end-of-life care, so that's things like palliative care, maybe spiritual or psychological care, and they need to inform that person about how much time they might have left. They need to ensure at every step of the process that that person can change their mind at any time, including up until the point that medication is given. They need to encourage that person to talk with their family and ask for permission to speak to some of those family members too. And the doctor also needs to go and then talk to all of the health professionals involved in their care as well. And this is about um, painting that picture to make sure that the person is not being pressured into their decision. And if at any point in the process, either the doctor or the nurse practitioner who is able to administer the medication suspect, even just suspect pressure, uh, they must stop that process immediately and report it to the registrar. The Act also states that doctors cannot suggest assisted dying to any patients, but doctors do not have to participate themselves. They do need to refer that person to the oversight body who will help them find another doctor. So these are just some of the safeguards and they are highly prescribed and protective. If doctors do not comply with them, they risk uh, prosecution, even prison. So this legislation has been through robust revisions and has had significant public input to ensure that it strikes that delicate balance or the right balance between safety and access. So onto the international evidence. Assisted dying is increasingly being legalized around the world. I think now 18 jurisdictions have access to it with over 200 million people having access. Although instances of it remain relatively rare and primarily involve people with cancer. So the latest and largest international view of all of the available data concluded from over 20 years of data that assisted dying is safe. There's evidence from the Netherlands, Belgium and the US state of Oregon where assisted dying is legal that demonstrate that no vulnerable groups are overrepresented or are at heightened risk of accessing assisted dying. So these are people like the elderly, women, uninsured, people with low educational status, low socioeconomic status, the physically disabled, the chronically ill, minors, people with psychiatric illnesses, including depression, and ethnic minorities. 
Here in New Zealand, of course, we have research that shows that 5% of GPs are already carrying out assisted dying, somewhat surprisingly. It is safer to bring this practice of hastening death out into the open so those doctors who are willing to participate can be regulated and monitored and patients can give informed consent and have access to this choice fairly rather than a postcode lottery of finding a doctor who might help you to die. Of course, the health system is by no means perfect, including inequities of access, systemic racism and ableism, but denying the choice to people at the end of life is not going to change those disparities, unfortunately. And I think we should advocate for a system that can let terminally ill people make choices about the end of life, as well as advocate for a system that doesn't force those choices on others. As part of my PhD, I had the privilege of speaking to people approaching the end of life who wanted to have the option of assisted dying available to them. They were generous enough to share their deeply personal and at times painful experiences of dying with me. They said for them, assisted dying was this option of last resort when palliative care was no longer effective. This wasn't something that they particularly wanted to do, but that they wanted this option available to them. Uh, it was about having choice when the quality of their life or the quality of their dying was no longer one that was tolerable. And this brought them some control over their dying to make sure that they accessed a good death. I don't have time to read you um, all of their testimonies, so I'll leave you with just one from a woman I'm calling Dee. Um, I interviewed her while she was in hospice, and she said, hospice are bloody good, but they don't have a magic wand. Unbearable suffering is when intense pain takes over, when your whole being, the only focus of your whole being is on the pain. What can we do to change it? Okay, well, let's give those things a try, and then if this doesn't work, then assisted dying is my option. There's probably an 80% chance that I may never need assisted dying because the pain control is good, but they can't guarantee it. I do just absolutely believe that I would know when the right time is, but I would need the agreement of the people around me. And she wanted me to impart that people wouldn't make this decision lightly because it was a really big decision for her and for the people around her. There's also extensive evidence that shows New Zealanders are taking their lives prematurely when assisted dying is not available to them. And they do that earlier than necessary um, while they're still physically able. In my interviews, it was evident that the effects of denying people autonomy over their death ripple widely if they take their own life. The drastic things that people are forced to resort to, but also those mundane and surreal things like thinking that you have cyanide in your garage. Um, you know, people have to consider these things when they should be enjoying their time remaining. For me, doing nothing about the people taking their own lives should not be an option when a safe law like the End of Life Choice Act can be put in place. So in summary, a yes vote at the end of life choice referendum means another option for terminally ill people suffering terribly at the end of life. Talking to people approaching the end of life and their families about what dying is like, they told me it's hard, it takes an awfully long time, and they wanted certainty over how and when they died that medicine couldn't guarantee them. At the end of the day, even if you wouldn't choose this for yourself, why deny others that choice? Voting yes is a compassionate thing to do. Having looked closely at the international evidence of how these laws work in countries that are similar to ours, I'm confident that the End of Life Choice Act will ensure assisted dying is managed safely here too. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Jessica. It was a very clear presentation, much appreciated. Carol, uh, if I can turn to you now, if you would like to make your contribution, please. Hello, everybody. And thank you, Jonathan, for the introduction. I urge you all to vote yes in the referendum on assisted dying. And I will explain how I've come to this opinion. I'm now retired after working for over 50 years in general practice, providing a wide range of care to patients in all stages of life, from birth to death. In my early years in practice, I didn't have so much contact with patients at the end of their lives. And I espoused a view similar to many righteous doctors, disapproval of the concept that my profession 
should assist patients to end their lives early. In the 1980s, when the hospice movement started and palliative care was being developed, I believe that this new specialization would be all that my parents, my patients would need to achieve a good death. I was wrong. As I grew older, so did my patients, and my experience with patients dying increased. Some patients would beg me to provide them with a better way out, not just earlier in their illnesses when they were dreading what they had seen or heard of others experiencing, but towards the end of their illnesses when the best palliative care physicians could offer was being given. Some patients took their own lives with methods such as guns, carbon monoxide, jumping from heights, or starving themselves to death. This was a particularly distressing experience, not only for the patients themselves, with horrible choices of methods, many unsuccessful, distressing for the patients and their families and for their doctor. Some died much earlier than they needed because they didn't want to wait until they had no capacity to take action. I looked after my patients who wanted to die at home. I'd visit and be on call for them. For many, their palliative care relieved them of the worst of their distress, but not all. For others, I observed the effects of the unrelieved symptoms on their minds and their bodies and the emotional stress of all around them. Not just the pain, breathlessness, nausea, wasting, incontinence, and the psychological stress of total incapacity and dependence. I fully support the hospice movement and palliative care. It has hugely improved the comfort of dying patients, and I strongly approve making high quality specialist palliative care easily accessible to all New Zealanders in all areas. But palliative care is not a complete answer for every patient. In the case taken by young lawyer Lucretia Seals to the High Court to obtain permission to die at a time of her choosing from her terminal brain cancer, Justice Collins, Mr. Justice Collins stated, palliative care cannot necessarily provide relief from suffering in all cases. He had reviewed evidence presented by New Zealand and overseas palliative care professionals, both for and against assisted dying. Palliative Care Australia's data shows that around 15% of patients still have moderate to severe pain in the last days of their lives, and a higher number have other distressing symptoms with breathless nausea, incontinence, etc. They state, while pain and other symptoms can be helped, complete relief of suffering is not always possible, even with optimal palliative care. Overseas experience, is that only a very small proportion of dying patients will choose assisted dying. But there will be many others for whom knowing the option is available if they need it will reassure them that they can manage their dying without fear. When I trained and in the early part of my life as a doctor, the idea that the doctor knows best was still very prominent. Patients asked fewer questions and accepted your opinions with little questioning. And this has changed dramatically in my lifetime and with my full support. Patient autonomy is now the accepted ethical approach in all patient care, acknowledging that patients who have decision-making capacity have the right to make decisions regarding their care, even when their decisions contradict their clinician's recommendations. The rights of patients to choose assisted dying in the ways expressed in this act is completely consistent with the approach of patient autonomy. 
and indeed to refuse it goes very much against current medical ethics. This is now understood and generally accepted by my profession, often a little slow to adopt patient freedom and choices. For many of us, and I include myself, the fear of the process of dying is much greater than any concern about being dead. We accept as we get older, perhaps not with great enthusiasm, the concept that we're going to be dead, but it's the process of getting there that frightens us. And for good reason, we've seen or heard about a friend or relative dying bad in a miserable way, not going gently into that good night, it frightens us. And this fear makes the process so much worse for us. If we knew that palliative care was not the only option available, if palliative care is not able to make us comfortable, then that we could choose physician-assisted dying, so much of that fear would be gone. Three years ago, I visited a colleague in Vancouver who provides medical assistance in dying to patients under Canadian law. I attended a lecture she gave to her medical colleagues. I listened to her talking with patients and families and looked carefully at the protocols she was following. She described the way families were involved in supporting the dying patient and the gratitude of the patients and their families about what she provides. I was not able to attend a death with her, but the time spent with her finally moved me to fully accept that providing assistance in dying in the ways provided in this act is totally consistent with compassionate and ethical medical care of patients. Yes, we as a responsible community should tick yes in this referendum and give ourselves and our friends the respect that they, we are entitled to, to choose assisted dying under this act if we wish. I read the provisions and the safeguards. They're at least as stringent as medical practice usually demands and in some ways even more stringent. I do not see danger in this legislation. Thank you. Carol, thank you very much again for your very clear presentation and the account that you've provided of how you've in fact changed your position over the years. Thank you, Carol. Peter, if I can turn to you now for your statement on this topic, please. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you everyone for attending and thank you, Jonathan, for the kind introduction. Um, I'd like to start my presentation with a quote from Chesterton. He said that before you tear down a fence, you should inquire carefully as to why the fence was put there in the first place. At the moment in New Zealand, we have a clear fence around taking someone's life. No one has the authority to kill or order the killing of any New Zealander in any circumstances. What is being proposed in the End of Life Choice Act is, I believe, one of the most important contemporary ethical issues of our generation. Shall we breach this fence of safety to allow one person in defined circumstances to intentionally take the life of another at their request? This is a very serious question. Answering it, I think we could start it at a broader level with reference to our respective worldviews and a number of essential considerations that we have to take into account when wrestling with questions of this nature. What does it mean to be a person? What are our rights and responsibilities as members of a family or a community or a society? How far do we take personal autonomy? And how do we care for and love one another well? But given limited time, I want to drill in more specifically on some risks and unintended consequences that we see in the End of Life Choice Act if it comes into force. And I'd like to suggest three for your consideration. Firstly, what is the risk to people in vulnerable circumstances? Freedom of choice and personal autonomy have been discussed already by Carol and Jessica, 
but we need to also consider the risks for others. There are some who I would concede this sort of legislation would work well. Sir Michael Cullen spoke out recently, and I wouldn't expect him to be someone who would be coerced. But there are others, clearly, I think, who are placed at risk. We need to recall that the eligibility criteria apply to anyone over 18, but they will fall particularly heavily on those aged over 65. We know from published research in New Zealand and various statements put out by Seniors Minister Tracy Martin that as many as one in 10 older people in New Zealand will experience some kind of elder abuse. The majority of cases, she says sadly, will go unreported. During the Justice Select Committee hearings, for which there were almost 39,000 submissions, and I do note in passing that 90% of those were opposed to this legislation, we heard evidence from more than 5,000 who mentioned elder abuse specifically. That is, people in vulnerable situations, including the terminally ill, who feel a burden on others and therefore concluding that an early death might be best, even though in their heart of hearts, they don't actually want to seek it. Also, I think there are people in vulnerable circumstances who might lack access to care, and they're at risk of opting for an early death, not because it's what they really want, but because they have no other choice. So it's not a true choice, it's not one more option. It in fact becomes a default option, the absence of sufficient care. We know in New Zealand that palliative care and so on is limited in its scope, and we would urge that that's something that needs to be attended to and expanded. And to quote some specific stats from Canada, where euthanasia is legalised after four years of practice, they show that 11% of people who accessed assisted dying did not have access to palliative care, even if they need it. So I would argue that's not a true choice. The second point I'd want to raise briefly is that a majority of doctors in New Zealand do not support this act. They consider it to be unethical and that it disrupts the doctor-patient relationship of trust. In fact, I'd like to quote from palliative care specialist Dr Odette Spruitt in Australia. She says, as a palliative care specialist with over 25 years of practice, mostly in Victoria, I have found the institution of the Victorian law to have a devastating effect on my practice of palliative medicine. I've witnessed the devastating impact of this law on the cohesion of teams, on the relationships within clinical units and as a cause of deep moral distress among many of my colleagues, for whom this law and its accompanying narrative is anathema to the very core of our sense of what it is to be a doctor. Many doctors in New Zealand also have expressed that the act of intentionally taking the life of a patient profoundly contradicts why they even entered medicine in the first place, which is to care and not to kill. Over 600 doctors who submitted to the Justice Select Committee 93% of them were opposed to this law. 1,700 doctors have signed a doctor say no open letter to our MPs, whereas in comparison, only 23 doctors have signed the doctor say yes open letter. And I note finally that there wasn't one organisation involved in end-of-life care in New Zealand that spoke in support of this legislation during the Justice Select Committee hearing. A number spoke against it, of course. Thirdly, um, overseas experience, and a couple of our speakers have alluded to this already, our take on this is that it sparks serious concerns about a number of risks. Firstly, just to make the point for those who may not know, the number of deaths keeps growing. In the Netherlands, it's happened. In Canada, uh, they've now reached 14,000 over the first four years. And last year, 2019, they were 23% up on the previous year, 2018. And the reason for this is that the eligibility criteria, particularly in countries where euthanasia is offered, inevitably broadens. And so you might say, well, why is this? That the reason, I think, is that once you legalise the ending of life as a response to certain kinds of suffering, in effect, establish it as a right. 
then the arguments of discrimination immediately kick in and we begin to answer more and more types of suffering with death. For example, psychological suffering, chronic conditions and so forth. I think one, um, I think Jessica mentioned that most deaths are from cancer overseas, but in the Netherlands, it's only about two thirds and uh, other deaths are much more to do with general aging conditions of a generalized nature towards the end of life. So in this sense, death as a response to suffering really becomes normalized I would argue, and a default option in the society. And this has been observed by many commentators. Regarding the question of, of suffering specifically, and Jessica summarized the eligibility criteria, one of them is that the person experiences unbearable suffering that cannot be relieved in a manner that the person considers tolerable. Now, of course, that does sound bad, but it's important to note that the Act doesn't mention physical pain. And what the overseas experience clearly demonstrates is that much of the suffering reported by people is nothing to do with physical pain at all. So in Canada for 2019, for example, 82% of the more than 5,000 who were euthanized said that one of the reasons for wanting it, this is their person's definition of unbearable suffering, remember, was the loss of ability to engage in meaningful activities. A third of those people said that they felt a perceived burden on family, friends, or caregivers. And also about 13%, which is still a lot of people out of over 5,000, said that their cause of unbearable suffering was in part to do with isolation or loneliness. I consider that to be a tragedy. Pain was mentioned, but it came in at about fourth on the list. And also there was no distinction between pain or fear of pain. We believe that that's really is driven by people's desire to want to exit this life on their terms, rather than truly to do with pain, which is the explanation that we are given at the moment. Finally, just to finish a couple of points on choice, I'm sure we'll come back to this issue, Jonathan, but I think we need to lose the narrative that the End of Life Choice Act is about a private choice, because actually it's not. The very creation of the choice will change things for our whole society, as has been found overseas. Secondly, I think the Act, if passed, will apply not just to a few hard cases, and yes, there are hard cases, but to everyone. It applies to everyone in New Zealand in different contexts and circumstances. So this will result in our view in early deaths due to coercion in its various forms and or the lack of other options that I alluded to. Choice always exists in conversation with the options we see or don't see around us. And finally, choices have consequences. In my life, my choice has the consequence that someone else must be a party to your death. It's not your choice in action alone. If Parliament creates a moral right for a person to have their life ended, then that creates a moral duty and obligation for someone else to end their life. The burden of this moral duty falls squarely on our doctors. Let me finish with a quote from Dr. Shane Retty's speech during the final debate on the end of life choice bill. And he is a medical doctor himself, which he noted ruefully. This bill passes, I cannot imagine the spectre of euthanasia, ever present, looming over every single consultation, there but not there, present but unspoken, until it is dead to be given life. This bill dims the privilege of care. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Peter, for your very careful presentation of some of the issues that you're concerned about. I'd just like to give Jessica and Carol the opportunity to respond to, to what you've said, and then, Peter, an opportunity perhaps to respond to any particular point that Carol or, or Jessica has raised, and then we'll move to the questions from participants. Carol, go ahead. Just a, a brief comment on this question of coercion. The doctor's role in consultation after consultation is getting what we call informed consent and absolutely requires a process of screening 
for coercion. It's a daily activity. And yes, perhaps sometimes doctors get it wrong, but more and more focus is on doctors working with their patients to understand the process of informed consent. And I think you belittle the doctor's role when you make this such a big issue. Coercion in many aspects of our life is a reality, but in medical areas, and built into this act even, are processes to try and make sure that that's not playing a significant role. Peter, did you want to respond to that particular point? Oh, all right, well, very quickly, uh, this is a serious concern. The New Zealand Medical Association with its 5,000 members says that they believe it may well be impossible for doctors to detect coercion. We have to remember that in the Act, although there's two doctors involved in making the decision around eligibility, only one of the doctors has to do his or her best, to use the language of the Act, to make sure that there is no pressure on the person. Many lawyers tell us that is a very weak test and uh, we believe will not simply not stand the test. We have to bear in mind, Carol, that the consequences of getting this wrong is an unlawful death. That's a very serious outcome. And uh, the, the Royal College of GPs also believes that it is not possible for the doctor to adequately detect coercion. And so again, the same problem exists. Now you will probably come back and say, ah, but the doctor has to consult with other medical practitioners, which the Act requires. But the doctor can only do that, firstly, if the patient gives permission, and secondly, if the patient is actually no, consulting with other medical no. practitioners. Actually, the doctor yes, has okay. to consult with the other uh, Well, that's being... The permission is only to speak with the family. Uh, no, uh, well, I beg to differ on this, because the doctor has not a right under their normal codes of conduct to go to another health practitioner. They, they simply do not have that on the grounds of privacy. They must get the permission of the consulting doctor. The registrar does it. It's written into the Act. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't understand that. That uh, a second doctor has to be involved, chosen by the registrar, not even yeah, by... Yeah, but the... not, not to do it co coercion, which is the point I'm addressing. Only one doctor... That will be one of the things that that doctor... To see this pressure on the patient. So right. they also can consult with... They are, they are encouraged to talk with family, but again, if the person doesn't give permission, the doctor is not allowed. So conceivably, on no one else... confidentiality is one of the, um, you know, the most foundational principles of medical practice. So I don't I don't see why we would forego patient confidentiality in these circumstances. Uh, well, that's the advice I've received, that a doctor cannot automatically go and talk to a patient with other doctors. They need the patient's permission to do that for privacy concerns. Anyway, I, it's clearly right. a bit of a point of difference, but, but we, we feel that this is a very weak protection in the bill, in the act. So, so there's some issues here around some, perhaps the technical understanding of procedures. Are there any other issues you'd like to raise before we go to questions? Jessica, was there anything that you particularly wanted to respond to from what Peter said earlier? Yes, I mean, the argument of a slippery slope is, uh, I agree, a concern for any further changes to the Act, and this is what we're voting on, we're getting a very specific piece of legislation, uh, any changes would need to go through further uh, parliamentary processes, have public input, and over 50% of our MPs would have to agree to those changes. The countries that have widened their laws, um, for example, Belgium, that reflects their culture and agreement of those societies to proceed. Um, and the intention of those laws are around unbearable suffering, whereas our law is specifically about the end of life. And so if any pressure is detected, just to continue on the coercion conversation, if any pressure is detected at any point throughout the process, the whole process needs to stop and be reported to the registrar. So... 
Just while we're on this question of coercion, a question has come in from a participant to the panel, to all panel members. And the question is, what is different in the coercion discussion for general medical procedures and the coercion uh, discussion with respect to patients around palliative care and end of life uh, choice? So in other words, is there, uh, is there a distinction here between general medical procedures and, and what is required or not required in relation to palliative care and end of choice issues? I don't believe so. I think that it may well be in the amount of time you put into it, because obviously it is very much a major part of this decision. But, you know, in, in, in any um, major medical decision, the risks, if the risks are major, you are looking very carefully to make sure that the patient is making a free choice. Even for, for some nasty sorts of cancer treatment or major operations which, are, which have high risks, you are going to be very careful about screening for coercion and discussing this with the patient. In this particular law, I think it's even more emphasised. Well, with respect, it is emphasised and... We simply do not believe that it's anywhere near robust enough. We have to consider about incentive and consequences. The incentive here could well be a financial one. And you know, if you've come a good family, you might be puzzled by this, but there were literally thousands of submissions to the select committee specifically concerned about this issue. People in aged care, uh, nurses, doctors, family lawyers, and uh, others who were reporting that they had observed and they observe in their daily professional lives, family coercion. So if you add in the incentive of, for instance, a financial centre from an early death, that is hugely problematic in my opinion. I agree there are concerns um, around elder abuse and these should be remedied. Separate to that issue though, if you were abusing your elder, for example, then you wouldn't put them in front of two, maybe three doctors to discuss their situation. This process would pick up any coercion um, or perhaps abuse even, and then sort the appropriate response out? Uh, I mean, to be honest, with respect, I understand the point, Jessica. I think that's a very theoretical point. People who are in the front line of, of many spheres of medical care and provision and so on, say so they see it all the time. It happens. And you can't deny that. I mean, thousands of people made written submissions to the select committee. It's on the record. And they are saying, and, and actually Minister Tracy Martin admits this. She says, mostly it goes undetected it is very hard to detect. Now, that's the minister of our seniors saying that. She's not My going to point is that this process will detect that. Clearly, there's a point of debate here, but yeah. many lawyers, 200 lawyers have said this simply will not hold up. It will and other lawyers have com concluded that there is the exact opposite effect. So, I mean, can we do we play a so numbers game or do we look at what the Act states? So if I could just intervene very quickly, this is really interesting, but obviously there's a range of considerations here. One is around general medical procedures and the adequacy of protections for patients and, and so forth right now, irrespective of end-of-life choice issues. And then there's a, a set of questions, obviously, around the adequacy or lack thereof of the procedures that are uh, outlined in the Act. I appreciate this is an important issue, but there's a lot of, lot of other important issues that it would be nice perhaps to, to move on to. And there's a number of questions. So if, if you wouldn't mind, I'd just like to go to some of the questions that listeners have, have put. So here's a, a question. Uh, it reads, my understanding is that Pharmac does not subsidize medications for some types of cancer. Uh, many people cannot afford the cost of some unsubsidized medication. For those on both sides of the debate, should these anomalies be fixed first? 
Otherwise, A, there is no choice to the patients who would effectively, no choice to the patients and would be effectively end of life, even if the referendum does not pass. Uh, and B, patients may be forced to opt for end of life without adequate medication if the referendum does pass. So the question here is about the problem of unsubsidized medications at the moment, and should that be dealt with? Carol, did you want to have a comment on that? I think we're all in favour of more money being spent effectively for providing cancer treatments, but it would be very difficult to sort of write into the law any possible treatment must have been tried. Yes, effective treatments should be available. We, I would agree that we under-resource them. Um, these, are, these are quite difficult decisions for the, for the government to make, with some limitation on our resources. Mm. But I, I suspect that most people who are at that terminal stage are actually beyond the effect of, of those sort of drugs. It's really a later stage that this bill is looking at, this act is looking at. Right. Can I just ask, though, just a sort of follow-up question, is there a possible risk if the End of Life Choice Act uh, comes into force next year as a result of positive vote in the referendum, that this may reduce uh, public pressure and thus political action to ensure access to the full range of drugs that can provide assistance and, and or uh, to quality palliative care. In other words, does the assisted dying, does that potentially create an environment in which there may be less action taken to address what I would imagine is a concern for all of you? Jessica, do you want to comment on that? Yes, I do. Interestingly, what we've seen overseas is an improvement in palliative care and an increase in funding because people recognise that these are important times in people's lives and they deserve the best care that's available to them. And for some people, that um, includes end-of-life choice. So we've seen an improvement in people dying at home. We've seen an improvement um, in end-of-life conversations. Uh, so there's a wider implication of the end-of-life referendum passing, and that is a positive impact on palliative care. Can I ask which countries you're referring to there? Yes, Oregon, um, Victoria, Belgium has an integrated palliative care and assisted dying system. And so it isn't an either or, it's a, it's a complementary process in addition to palliative care for people when palliative care stops working. Yeah, I mean, Oregon and uh, Victoria, the numbers are pretty small. So to draw a correlation strikes me as a little strange. Well, Oregon uh, and, and Victoria have the most similar legislation to New Zealand. It's all very well to talk about Belgium and the Netherlands, but they have very wide laws and we have a very narrow law, much like Oregon and Victoria. In effect, our laws are actually more stringent because we have additional safeguards in place that aren't in those legislations. I mean, it won't surprise you that there are a number of people that challenge that conclusion that palliative care increases. I think that is a point of contention. And in Canada, I think they would say that the cost of putting in assist dying has been phenomenal. And there are some, admittedly not all, but some who believe that that's been at the expense of providing other services. So it's a controversial thing. And you could make the same point about New Zealand. If this is introduced, that will be at quite significant cost to provide the, the necessary uh, bureaucracy and infrastructure to put it in place. But comparing the cost of no policy and some policy is always going to have a differential. So I don't think it's fair to compare no policy with some policy. All right, could I just perhaps move on to a few further questions? And can I just invite listeners that you have the opportunity both to ask a question, but also to indicate a preference for the questions that are being asked. And I will take them in order of those preferences. We have a question here asking, is it true that the majority of nurses support euthanasia 
And if so, why do you think that is? Anyone like to answer that one? I'll give a partial answer. Others may have a view. In the select committee process, Justice Select Committee, over 800 nurses wrote in and 93% of them were opposed. Uh, nurses New Zealand is opposed as an organisation and there are many nurses that are deeply concerned about the implications of this law. You can't play the numbers game with with uh, with submissions. I mean, we know that that certain churches, for instance, mandate a submission. You get thousands of submissions saying the same thing. So the numbers uh, game with submissions Carol, is I'm, meaningless. Sorry, I'm going to challenge you on that, Carol. I and some volunteers read all of the submissions, all 39,000 of them. And uh, I'm I'm sorry, that's just not correct. Yes, some churches would have encouraged some people. But there was a wide cross-section from organisations, all sorts of groups, uh, lawyers, doctors, nurses, and almost 2,000 healthcare workers. So to simply say, oh, was some, some group of the society is not correct. i just saying, I don't think playing the numbers game is looking at the, at the content and, the, um, and where they come from. The, there are, the nurses' organisation itself certainly is very supportive of the law and of the Act. I believe that, um, that nurses are the people who are at the coalface 24 hours of the day. They work eight, 10 longer, sometimes shifts, looking after people dying. And they are very realistic and understanding of the distress that those patients suffer, even under palliative care. And I think that's where you get the, the, the strongest move from nurses because they, they see it and they feel it and they find it very hard in their daily work. Thank you, Carol. If I could come to an, another question, and this question reads, are there any stories about what actually happens when people use existing laws? What choices do they get? Can they choose to die at home? And how does it actually feel for those people? Do they have any information about this? And I think the question is, do the panel members have any information about this? Carol, you're probably best placed to answer that one initially, just about, you know, under the current arrangements, what choices do people have? Somewhere I've got a list of them. Um, yes, they can, they can die at home. Anybody can die at home. They can refuse further treatment, which is one of the commonest things that people do. They feel that the treatment, they've suffered so much from the treatment they've had that this is enough. They can um, refuse... They, they can they can use pain relief and sedation, and this is the commonest way which deaths are managed with upping the levels of pain relief and sedation, morphine like drugs uh, and other sedatives. What have I missed out, Jessica? Um, well, uh, the question asker has just clarified the yes. question. Um, but I'll Go just ahead, Jessica. Yes. On the sedation point, um, I've conducted some research with people at the end of life, and they acknowledge, or they want to acknowledge that life is already ending when you're sedating someone or withdrawing life support and so on. And so they would argue that a quicker, less painful death is a preferable option for them. So assisted dying when happens around the world, people um, in New Zealand, people can choose to self-administer that or have that um, administered by a doctor. Mm. The stories where people do access it, they are of comfort, of bringing their family together, spending special moments together, you know, sharing last stories, telling people what they've meant to them. And it brings them a huge amount of comfort to have that option available to them, even if they don't choose it. We know from Oregon that about a quarter of people don't actually take this medication, but they just need that medication as a last option of an exit strategy, you might call it. If things get too bad, 
And so this choice brings people a lot of comfort. And for those who don't want to take it, they just have no part in it. Peter, did you want to comment? Yes, please. Just to make the point, and I didn't realise this until several years ago when I, I got a bit more involved in this issue, but hospices around New Zealand care for over 19,000 people a year. Uh, that is significant. It's not kind of a niche service for the lucky few. Broad base, and if they were able to get more funding, they would be able to broaden that even further. And time and again, you talk of the, of the stories of, because they provide wraparound, wraparound care, they don't only deal with physical pain and concerns, they deal with psychological, they bring fun out together, uh, they provide a wonderful experience for someone in those last days and weeks of their lives. People can elect to, even under hospice care, die at home, as well as, as an inpatient. Um, and the, the final thing I'd want to add just on this point is that we do have, as another option, palliative sedation. The thing that's interesting is that uh, palliative sedation basically means when you put someone into a light coma, they can be brought out of it, but it does relieve suffering. And I've talked to a palliative care physician about this uh, from the South Island, and she told me that out of about 500 patients that she would care for in a year, uh, about half of a cent would actually go for palliative sedation. So it's there if it's needed. And uh, as a layperson, I find that very comforting. Going the next step to intentionally inject a lethal dose of something to end somebody's life is quite different from providing care, including palliative sedation, at the end of life. And that, that's really in line with the hospice philosophy to neither hasten uh, nor postpone a natural death. Thanks, Peter. Look, we have a, a, a number of other questions. So if I could just uh, perhaps work through these, and then I'm going to provide an opportunity perhaps for some wrap-up comments towards the end, since we've got about 10 minutes to go. Um, there's a question here which reads something like this. Uh, is there a chance that there will become some GPs who are publicly known as more likely to provide end-of-life choice assistance, presumably, and do it with less rigour uh, in applying the legislation, i.e. people may go to certain GPs who are known to sort of go through the process perhaps with le less attention to detail? Is this a risk or is the legislation sufficiently robust? Who would like to comment on that? I believe it's robust. Yes, I'm sure there will be a group of doctors who, who are prepared initially to provide this care, whereas other people won't. But you'll, most patients will start with their own doctor because that, in the way that is prescribed in, in the Act. And then that, but they may do the assessment and they say, well, I actually don't provide this, we need to find another doctor who will. And now they may go to the registrar for some advice on where to find it. There may well be a group who put their name on a list and say, yes, I will. But this, that's no reason to assume that they will do it any less rigorously. They are even more likely to be rigorous about it because it's not their patient. They will get more experienced in doing it and in, in, in complying with the Act. But nothing there to suggest that it will be a less rigorous process. Thanks, Carol. Peter, you, you have a well, comment. Just briefly, I, I mean, I'm in no position to comment on the rigour or otherwise of how that would play out, to be honest. I know in Canada, if you look at the stats, and they put out quite useful statistics, actually. So from last year, there was a skewed distribution. There are a few doctors that provide a lot of assisted deaths, then some provide a few, and then many doctors who will not want to participate at all and choose not to. Thanks, Peter. Now, uh, there's a question further, if we go back to the situation in other countries. Um, the question here is, how are the laws working in other countries? For example, I know there are laws in parts of Australia and the United States. Well, we've already discussed some aspects of that. I wonder perhaps if we could perhaps deal with one or two other aspects of the way the laws are operating in other jurisdictions that might be relevant for us, bearing in mind that 
as uh, Jessica pointed out, the, the legislation that will be enacted here in New Zealand will be more restrictive than it is, at least in some other jurisdictions. Peter or Jessica, did you well, want to comment I on that? Have the report from Victoria open, and they say that feedback, I quote, feedback and information gathered over the last six months continue to highlight the compassion and relief Victoria's voluntary assisted dying scheme is providing to terminally ill people, their friends and their families. Uh, the board is touched by reading those testimonials and the comfort that it has provided them. The chair, who is a Supreme Court justice in Australia, says that she's been looking for evidence of coercion and that it is not there and that it's working well. So I think we can take comfort in that these laws work well overseas and they can work well here too. Peter, did you want to comment on this? Well, I mean, we, we are back to the coercion one, which Jessica's mentioned again. Any lawyer would tell you that given the particular act here, which results in the death of the patient, there is no way post hoc to identify or see any evidence of coercion. It's only the doctor involved and the patient. The patient receives the lethal dose and then it's just the doctor. So it's just not there's clear at all. There's, there's a registrar overseeing every step of the process before uh, any well, medication is dispensed. Uh, the so registrar has a, very, has a very limited role under the act. It is primarily a record keeping role. Uh, no, that then, person is the final gate to make sure that every step has been complied with, every check has been uh, balanced and so on. So actually I disagree with their... Yeah, uh, well, we are disagreeing on this. I would specify it purely as a bureaucratic processes. Perhaps a little unkindly box ticking. It is not a rigorous oversight in terms of the actual relationship between the patient or the doctor. That, that essentially is private. So in terms of a regulatory framework, Peter, what you're saying is that the registrar isn't going to be sitting in the consultation room, for example, or at the hospital bed uh, watching what's happening, but will be overseeing the paperwork, so to speak, that is supplied to him or her. Is that? Is that uh, yeah, it is. And the, the, the data that are intended to be collected here are very limited, even compared to overseas, although you know where I'm coming from and I don't like the regimes in places like Canada and the Netherlands and so on. They do provide quite detailed information to their credit. But I agree, we need better information. Beg your pardon? I agree, we will need better information and data. Much better in terms of so, the time of the day. So Jessica, can I ask? Yeah, Sorry. ethnicity, for instance, is not collective. Well, how can you get any sense of the, the impact of the regime across the society if you're not collecting those basic types of indicators? But of course, the forms haven't been prescribed yet, so we don't know what data will be collected. But um, as a researcher in this field, I would like as much data to be collected as possible around who is being given access, who is being turned down and why, what are the reasons that people are seeking assisted dying, um, what supports and referrals have they been given throughout that process? Because of course, part of the process is being given referrals if desired to other end of life care. And, and Jessica, on that point, it looks like we're in total agreement. The more data, the better. We don't want to go down this path, but if we do at the least, let's be honest about it. We yes. have a lot of transparency and be able to assess its impacts. And Jessica, from what you're saying, then in some ways, uh, that there's going to be an opportunity for uh, over, the, over the coming months to perhaps input, if the legislation is supported in the referendum, to, to input into the whole question of exactly what information is, is collected and, and then reported. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Okay. All right. Look, I've got one final question from uh, listeners, and then I've got a question for you all, perhaps just to wrap up with. So the question here is, I've heard that some people who get uh, medication, presumably to assist them in dying, don't actually end up taking it. Sort of, is that true? And if so, why? In New Zealand, under this act, they can't sort of hold on to it. 
it's the doctor has control of the medication. In some jurisdictions, jurisdictions they will they will get their medication and hold it and use it themselves when they're ready. This act requires that the doctor remains uh, nearby on with the patient or nearby and from the time they get the medication until they die. So um, they can delay though initiating that process, the final process, mm -hmm. up to six months. But actually having the medication and doing what they like with it in that time is not possible. So it's going to be very carefully managed. Just to add to that very quickly, uh, I think it's people have this medication um, that brings them comfort. And we know that people actually at the end of life don't want to die. They want to keep on living, but that's not a choice that they can make. So having this choice available to them is an option of last resort and a comfort to them in times of need. Well, a couple of quick points from me. Um, there, is, there is an irony in calling this a medication. Uh, yes, it relieves suffering, but a 100% side effect is that it does end the life of the patient. And in the, the overseas experience from where euthanasia is offered, which includes Canada and the Netherlands, by and large, the lethal dose is administered by a lethal injection. And virtually all of the cases, that, in my opinion, would be the way that it would work in New Zealand. So to answer the question, no, the patient couldn't hold on to it because the lethal dose would be delivered at the time of death or to cause the death. And it would all happen, as Carol said, uh, in the presence of, yes. uh, of a medical practitioner. Right. Well, look, we're almost out of time, and I really do appreciate the engagement that the, the three of you have had in this in this really important debate. I'm going to put a question now, which you don't have to answer, but it's the following. If you were asked, what is the most powerful argument on the other side of the fence from the one you hold, what would it be? Peter, mm -hmm. uh, if, if, you were, if you were thinking, what's the most powerful argument for assisted dying, what would it be? And Jessica and, and Carol, what would be the most powerful argument against assisted dying from your point of view? Uh, well, for me, um, ironically, superficially, choice sounds compelling. We all like choice. We live in a modern liberal democracy. But as I hope I've been able to convey, choices have consequences and they have unintended consequences as well as intended ones. So to that extent, I would argue choice superficially seems compelling, but when you drill into it and its implications on the ground, I think there are some severe consequences that, in my opinion, are unacceptable, and we should pursue other options around end-of-life care, such as palliative, put more money into palliative, increase the skills and resources available. And I think that's a okay. positive way forward to really show care and compassion and hope in a way that All I think right. is helpful. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Jessica? Um, well, actually, palliative care, but um, you know, the, I, uh, the experts on both sides of Lucretia Seal's case concluded that palliative care cannot relieve all suffering. So while it's amazing, and I would advocate for wider palliative care access, for some people we know that palliative care is not enough. Okay, and Carol? For me, the argument remains the, the position that I originally held, that it is extremely difficult for doctors to change an attitude to assisting with dying. And that is still for many doctors, it will take a while and many will, will never want to participate in it. And it is an argument, but I do think that true compassion has to overcome that. All right. Well, look, thank you very much uh, to Peter, Carol and Jessica for your very thoughtful presentations at the beginning of this webinar and then for your very clear and thoughtful answers uh, to each other's questions and concerns and also to the questions from, from listeners. I hope for listeners this has been a useful discussion and that we've tried to highlight some of the critical issues at stake in this forthcoming referendum. Uh, thank you for, for listening in. 
Uh, and can I just direct you again, if you wish to find out further information, uh, please go to the website that, that has been advertised on, on the chat link. And we look forward to further discussion, I'm sure, over the next uh, 14, 17 days or whatever, before the, the referendum vote is concluded on the 17th of October. But thank you very much. All the very best for now. And goodbye. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, thank you Jonathan. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stephen Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere Rā.